Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film, always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we'll be celebrating the 70th anniversary of A Streetcar Named Desire, which originally came out on September 18th, 1951. And we'll also be doing an Oscar Rewind to all of the Best Director nominated films, which include A Place in the Sun by George Stevens, who won Best Director, The African Queen by John Huston, An American in Paris by Vincent Minnelli, Detective Story by William Wyler, and A Streetcar Named Desire by Elia Kazan. First, those are some huge names that you just read off, and I think that's part of the reason why we're mixing up our Oscar Rewind today. So normally we cover all of the Best Picture nominees when we do these, but clearly we would rather maybe talk about these directors this year instead of doing Quo Vadis and Decision Before Dawn. This Oscar race is one of the most important in the history of the Academy Awards. We Mm -hmm. think about, you know, what happens to the industry when a certain type of movie wins Best Picture, in this case, An American in Paris being that winner and how that influences what films are getting made, what people are seeing for years to come. This is certainly one of those races that I'm very excited to pick apart a little bit and argue about. I'm so curious, like, what you think of these movies because I know for a good amount of these... Some of these were first-time watches for me, and some were also repeat Mm -hmm. viewings. Obviously, Streetcar, for me, was a repeat viewing. It was for me, too, and I really enjoyed it on rewatch. I think this collection of movies, I haven't seen Decision Before Dawn or Quo Vadis, but I think this will be a much more fun discussion. And being able to capture some of those other categories at the Oscars, which, to me, were shocking. And I think just as a year in film some very iconic ones and memorable ones too. Also just some very hot, sweaty, filthy performances and films, which Mm -hmm. was great. (laughs) We can always appreciate, you know, beautiful nominees in this case. Well, let me save that for when we get to our discussion (laughs) on A Place in the Sun, because it was was truly like staring at the sun at some parts. (laughs) And just 20-year-old Liz Taylor. I just... A baby. That's enough said, yeah. So, so beautiful. I just, yeah, we're, you know, we're already wanting to talk about that movie, which is understandable. But let's get started with A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm-hmm. Description here. Blanche Dubois moves in with her sister in New Orleans and is tormented by her brutish brother-in-law while reality crumbles around her. This was directed by Elia Kazan and written by the great Tennessee Williams. It stars Vivian Lee, Marlon Brando, Kim Hunter, and Carl Malden. It won four Oscars, Best Actress for Vivian Lee, Best Supporting Actor for Carl Malden, Supporting Actress for Kim Hunter, and Art Direction, Black and White. It was nominated for eight other Oscars, including Picture, Director, Actor for Brando, Screenplay, Cinematography, Black and White, costume design black and white score and sound recording so you said you'd seen this before when did you first see it and maybe how did this rewatch hold up for you how did you enjoy it this time around this is pretty similar to a lot of my other rewatches where it was a long time ago and just in my consumption of films that were important to film history it's a blur so Basically, I'm just saying these are all new watches for me. Okay, yeah. New experiences. 
so I think on this time around, I was entranced by all of the performances. I really liked it. I think it's up there in my favorite play adaptations of all time. Mm -hmm. Definitely acting performances of all time. Finally, I can say that where I feel like a lot of these movies, they're like fine. But this was like best of the best. Just watching Mm -hmm. Marlon Brando work is like incredible. And obviously Vivian Lee too, just masterpiece work. I think a lot of times when we talk about the Oscars, whether it's last season where we had multiple play adaptations that we'd been talking about all along, like which one will get in, The Father, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, One Night in Miami, like going through all of them. A lot of times movies like that, and rightfully so sometimes, get dinged for being kind of a movie in play clothing. They don't really achieve cinematic greatness. They're mm-hmm. distractingly uncinematic. But here, it's 51, and we're at this, I think, precipice of cinema changing, especially American cinema. It's moving in this different direction, and part of that is because of Vivian Lee and Marlon Brando, and honestly, Kim Hunter and Carl Malden, too. I think this whole cast is just, like, knockout good. But I do think those two in particular really just knock it out of the park, especially when we're thinking about their clashing styles of acting and how well that works for both of the characters. I know we're going to talk about performances more specifically a little bit later on, but to Mm -hmm. me, this is just exactly what I want from a play adaptation. I want the script to work on all levels when when you have Tennessee Williams. That's fairly easy to do, I would say, but... I think Elia Kazan's naturalism, his like desire to cast unknowns and to work with method actors, like really shows here. And in addition to just having hot Marlon Brando, you can just feel how just like sweaty and hot this Tennessee Williams environment is mm-hmm. throughout it. And that's one of my favorite things. In the beginning you get sucked into this New Orleans jazz southern world and i think it all just fits together so fluidly the setting the action the direction the music everything and since we're kind of focusing on the best director nominees today a little background about Elia kazan he actually won best director at the oscars twice for gentleman's agreement and on the waterfront and he was nominated three other times for best director for a streetcar named desire east of eden and america america He also won a Lifetime Achievement Award in 1998. He oddly has a perfect record at the Golden Globes, which I thought was funny. He Hmm. won Best Director all four times that he was nominated. And he also has three Tonys for directing plays. So I think if you think back to this period in American filmmaking, Elia Kazan is one of the biggest names of the time. Stanley Kubrick specifically called him quote, without question, the best director we have in America and capable of performing miracles with the actors that he uses. He also has this really deep focus for his actors. And obviously here he got incredible performances out of his ensemble. But one thing in going through his biography that I thought was really cool is that he actually 
co-founded the Actor Studio in 1947, and this Actor Studio actually introduced method acting under the direction of the famous Lee Strasberg. So this is kind of where it was born, and I think that his love for this type of style really comes through in his casting mm-hmm. here, but makes it even more fascinating, I think, that Vivian Lee, with her more classical theatrical style gave such a good performance as well and really worked so well alongside Marlon Brando and his more brash method acting style. And also Elia Kazan directed the Broadway version of this. He also kept most of the cast. So maybe if you hadn't heard of Carl Malden or Kim Hunter, they were stage actors in the Broadway show and Marlon Brando also brand new. But Jessica Tandy was also the original Blanche Dubois, but they felt that they needed a movie star. So in comes Vivian Lee. It's not like she was unfamiliar to the role. She'd actually been um, in the West End production. So um, she came in and poor Jessica Tandy. Also, please stop me at any time if I go on too long about <laughs> Vivian Lee, because this is like my <laughs> other favorite best actress win. I'm fairly new to Elia Kazan. I've only seen this and then on the waterfront i think we could definitely do another episode on Elia kazan and how he was also an immigrant just like weiler just like capra so i'm definitely not familiar with his work but i think you mentioning that he directed the stage version too i would love to see the difference because i think it translates well on film definitely and i think that one thing i really like about his direction here is that he doesn't spell everything out for the audience like you get so much out of the writing and I think he knows that that he doesn't need to overly explain things Mm -hmm. he's not one of those directors who's like many of the ones that we have today that are like let me show you with all this like razzle dazzle that I'm a filmmaker and I can do all of these you know really unique things let it be the actors who do that and kind of let them be the ones who are shepherding the story along. I really like that about him, and I really like that about this adaptation. I think you just answered our future question of maybe why this split picture director, even though he didn't win director <laughs> here, I think you just answered the question of <laughs> yeah. why Manelli didn't win. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh, always thinking ahead, you know. I think it's also fascinating that you mentioned the Golden Globes 4 for 4 wins, but he wasn't nominated here for Streetcar. They only had three nominees in that category, which is so bizarre. Wait, who were they? It was Laszlo Benedek for Death of a Salesman who won, and then Minnelli for American in Paris and Stevens for Place in the Sun. Okay. Hmm. And we'll go through a lot of the precursors and maybe why it ended the way it did, but still weird that he wasn't included. Yeah, it is strange. And this to me does feel like the actor movie. Like this would be the Mm -hmm. one that the actors were voting for and championing and that directors were going more towards A Place in the Sun, which again, I'm trying not to like step on our conversation about A Place in the Sun, but I was really impressed with some of the direction in that movie as well. So we did have two good options. Thankfully, it went to one of them. (laughs) So getting into the movie a little bit here, very actor heavy, like you said, part of me was thrown off in the beginning with Blanche being the central character and not Stella because it's obviously the Stella scream that Mm -hmm. you know about. 
So I think that was a nice little twist in a way, but the dialogue, the writing is just so good. And that's definitely thanks to Tennessee Williams. Right. And I think what I love about the opening is that it feels so much like Elia Kazan understands who Vivian Lee is and what comes along with her and casting her. And they said they wanted a movie star and you can't really get much bigger than the star of the best box office success of all time, Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. Here she is. She's back. She's playing another complicated Southern woman. And I love how she just kind of emerges from the smoke. Like you see this like bride and her friends. And then you see Vivian Lee and she's almost like this specter. You're like, who is she? Okay, she's arriving at this location. She's so pale. She's incredibly feminine. You can't really gather like how old she is. You just have a lot of questions about her. And it almost does feel like you're seeing Scarlett O'Hara 11 years later, which I thought was really cool. And then you mentioned like how great the dialogue is and how like, sharp the writing is. I love how, you know, when we first arrive there and Blanche is just so out of sorts, like how do they live here type of thing. Mm-hmm. And then we see this interaction between Blanche and Stella, played by Kim Hunter, and you get so much information about their relationship in just a few lines. Mm -hmm. You get, you know, Blanche's confidence mixed with her insecurity here about her looks and her vanity when, you know, she's basically telling her sister, like reinforcing the idea that she's the pretty one, basically. And you just get so much about their relationship dynamic there and like what Stella cares about. It's very interesting. And This whole time, too, I think if you know kind of what we know, at least I was just waiting for more Marlon Brando. It's like, where is he? (laughs) The acting and the writing works so well together here. Obviously, they're both great, but there's so much depth in their performances, too. You can see a lot of gears turning. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about Marlon Brando here. Specifically, I think when we really first see him when he is talking to... Blanche. Well, going off my point again is that we initially see him in the bowling alley starting this huge fight. Yeah. So that's what we're introduced to. And then we see him in the house talking to Blanche and he's changing, slightly distracted, not giving her his full attention. But when he does speak, I don't know how to describe it. <laughs> it's a lot. It's an overwhelming you know, thing to think about. He's just so consuming, I think, to the audience and to Blanche, because at that moment, she's like, oh, my God, am I going to fall for my sister's boyfriend or husband, whatever? But I think this dynamic that they start together is very interesting. Definitely. I think first, when I was reading about Marlon Brando and just, you know, him relatively being an unknown, just imagine, you know, it's 1951. You decide you're going to go to the movies that night and see A Streetcar Named Desire. And he just is on the screen with that face. Mm -hmm. You have to just be like, who is this? Mm -hmm. Who is this person that is going to ruin my life? (laughs) 
Like that is the vibe that he gives across to you as a viewer. And I'm sure if you had no idea who he was and like no idea who he was going to become, obviously, mm-hmm. what must that have been like? It was probably so overwhelming. I can't think of anyone today who I've seen like for the first time where I'm like, who is that person? We just don't have people like this anymore. I don't think. I think all of the actors, many that we'll talk today are deceivingly young. And Mm -hmm. you're right. We don't say that about really anybody today. Like you mentioned, just the dynamic between Stanley and Blanche. It's so fascinating to watch. Stanley and Blanche are both used to, I think, having a certain level of control. You know, this isn't a cat and mouse thing. This is like a cat and a cat. They're both clearly dominant Mm -hmm. alphas. You just feel this very fiery dynamic there, and it's very fun to watch. It's great direction in addition to being great acting. Mm -hmm. It lets them do what they're doing, and we're Mm -hmm. just in their world. I think another sign of the great acting is with Kim Hunter as Stella, and the one moment really is when she's walking down the steps after he screams her name, and Mm -hmm. she like comes down all sultry coming back to him like she always does and it's this like young hot love that can't be extinguished so for me like overall I'm kind of reiterating this but it's like all in the small movements and the quick glances or really tiny things that you pick up on along the way that transform this from like a good movie to a great one yeah that scene in particular is really It's kind of fascinating because, you know, when we are thinking about the conversation between Stella and Blanche at the bowling alley, they're reiterating to us that Stella is the plain one of the family, that Blanche is kind of the flighty beauty. You see Marlon Brando, at least me, and I was like, okay, what's going on here? Like, you have this woman who is supposed (laughs) to be this really plain woman with this really hot husband. But then in that scene, I think you really understand... Like, the power that she has over him. And you Mm. understand, like, their physical and emotional connection. And Kim Hunter there is fabulous. Like, she is not saying anything. This is all acting in her body and in her eyes. It's just, it's very, it's really good stuff. What did you think of Carl Malden as Mitch? Because he was our other Oscar winner of the group. Compared to everybody else, he was my least favorite, I guess. Justin having to compare them. He's good. Did you like his performance here? Do you think he was worthy? Oh, for sure. I actually really like him in this because this character is so strange to me. Like we see him really fluctuate between moods and his opinion of Blanche like throughout this. The scene in particular where he's bananas to me is when he's asking Blanche how much she thinks he weighs. It is so mm-hmm. funny yeah, and just yeah. really weird. You really understand the type of guy that he is, I think, just from that alone. And if we had to pick three, I don't really know who I would cut here, but I do like him in this role. But I think today, like, he would be one of those actors who, like, Quentin Tarantino might cast or maybe Paul Thomas Anderson in a role that requires that kind of strange comedy to it. But I'm certainly not as drawn to him as I am to the other three in the movie. Mm -hmm. Well, with that scene in particular, she's the one who starts asking him about his weight. And I'm like, what is happening here? (laughs) But I was also thinking to myself, was Belle Reeve a mental institution that she escaped? Because she is 
unwell in this movie. Like the way she hops yeah. from flirting with Stanley to flirting with Mitch here, I'm like, girl, you gotta calm down. You're visiting your sister. <laughs> I mean, who among us though? Like, I'm, <laughs> I don't know. but I think this gets into why the movie is called A Streetcar Named Desire. And you get to see all of these different kinds of desire and passion and love between the characters. Yeah, definitely. This movie has a lot of sexual heat to it. And, you know, yes, you get the title right away in the movie, which I also think is funny when mm-hmm. she says a streetcar named Desire right away. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like the Leo pointing at the screen meme. <laughs> but going back to what you said about like Blanche, she's very erratic. I think the more problematic moment is with whoever that teen, the teen boy. <laughs> the Dory, yes. <laughs> that, that is another level. Um, and we'll also talk about like her husband and all of that when we get to the differences between the stage adaptation and the film. But yeah, she's she is all over the place, to put it gently. <laughs> so I think before we get into the differences between the stage adaptation and the film... I texted you this yesterday, but I think we should go through some of the hottest Marlon Brando moments of the movie, (laughs) because there are very specific little things that he does that, you know, really just shocked Mm -hmm. me in a good way. I had rewound a scene because I like literally couldn't focus on the words and I had to like process (laughs) it a few times. (laughs) I had the subtitles on too, and I was like, wait, I can't do both. I mean... (laughs) One at a time, please. So yeah, let's go through. I think the first one for me was the moment you initially mentioned was when we meet him in the house. He's changing. He's got his rolled up sleeves, greased up, white tee look, and he's changing. And it was like, ooh, mama. (laughs) And you see like Blanche's face too. And you're like, okay. Like, I don't want to relate to you in this movie, but I do relate to you here. (laughs) My first moment is, this is a really weird one. It's when he meows. It's my next one, yeah. (laughs) It is a very convincing meow and really throws you off because you're like, okay, you're really going for it. And it made me wonder, like, if he actually added that in. It's not those cats. Another obvious one is when he's yelling Stella, and Mm -hmm. not in the action, but in just the pure angst and guilt that he feels, and then you can see him screaming Mm -hmm. through. That is what fascinated me there. And just the way that his shirt is, like, fully ripping off of him. (laughs) It's, like, off one shoulder. Yeah, it's, like, an off-the-shoulder, like, Quasimodo after the Festival of Fools look. (laughs) Hey, Stella! My next moment is just how he smokes his cigarettes. So he'll have like, he'll be smoking one cigarette and have one behind his ear. Mm -hmm. That was a very good look for me that, you know, I had to pause it. (laughs) And then my last one that I have is just, I mean, there are many, but this one really stood out to me is when he like shakes the beer bottle and then foam Mm -hmm. sprays out and he, you know, it goes all over him. Oh my God. Yes. It's a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, how did you get it to do it like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Professional 100%. stuff. <laughs> this is giving me DiCaprio and Wolf of Wall Street vibes. 
just like oh. off the wall doing what he wants and it all plays perfectly well you know we had to spend those few moments in the louisiana tennessee williams son there now let's get into some of the differences between the stage adaptation and the film version because I didn't really know a lot about this, to be honest. And mm-hmm. if you want to learn more, definitely watch um, Be Kind Rewind, her video all about Vivian Lee um, winning Best Actress for this year. She gets into a lot of the like the differences between the stage adaptation and the film version and why they happen that way. Mm-hmm. A big problem this year at the Oscars was getting through the censors and Streetcar and then Place in the Sun were the big two that had a lot of issues. And basically, it was just to appease the censors and get this movie out there. So Tennessee Williams and Elia Kazan, they had to work with the MPAA to, you know, basically get this through. And there were a couple of things that they just had to change. So between 1934 and 1954, Joseph Breen is the name that you will think of with the Hayes Code. So he was the person who was kind of the enforcer of it. In Hollywood. And he, the first thing that he did was he actually said that there was an inference of sexual perversion. And it specifically refers to Blanche's husband. So in the play, Blanche's husband dies by suicide after, you know, she finds him having an affair with a man. In the movie, this is, you know, completely removed from it. Mm-hmm. And instead, she just says that she didn't like how sensitive he was and that drove him to suicide, which is super vague and just doesn't get at her inherent homophobia, actually, and just kind of skirts totally around this. To me, a lot of the backstory was vague. I never fully understood Belle Reeve and what happened. It like burnt down or... And I don't think it even hit me that she was married previously. Yeah, it is confusing at first because she doesn't entirely say, like, why she's there. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm just not at my job right now. Like, I'm on leave. And <laughs> it's like, what's going on here, actually? And then later on, she says that Belle Reeve, which is like where their family, their family estate was... Mm-hmm. lost to the creditors and she doesn't have any money and she also doesn't have any money because she's a widow her husband died so that's the whole thing about like stanley thinking that she's hiding some inheritance right. and like okay. wants to root through her papers they kind of gloss over the fact that in the movie blanche is actually promiscuous which this movie in the play i think does address or like have this sexual heat behind it like we talked about but they didn't want that to be like another layer to it so wanted that to go they also wanted to eliminate all depictions of rape and this was kind of where tennessee williams and Elia kazan like really drew the line Hmm. because tennessee williams in particular thought you know as the writer of this play which won the Pulitzer and they tell you it won the Pulitzer with the title card, which I thought was really interesting Mm -hmm. and obviously purposeful in what they're trying to share with the audience. Like this is going to be intense. It's going to be different, but it won the Pulitzer. It's a brilliant work of American drama. Kazan wrote a letter to Charles K. Feldman, who was the producer of a streetcar named desire 
and in particular what he says is, I will not have Stanley stop short of the rape. I don't believe he would have, do you? Also, the rape is his final act in destroying her. If you want a heavy in the piece, it's Stanley. Perhaps Blanche could never have been saved, but I certainly think it should look that way for the moment with Mitch. The story of the latter half of this play is that Stanley doggedly hunts her down, down, down into the ground, and finally makes her dirt by taking her against her will. So, you know, he was he wrote this impassioned letter, and in the end of the play, it's more realistic. Stanley isn't punished, but the way that the movie ends is with Stella leaving Stanley, ultimately with the baby. She takes the baby and says that they're never going back. And that was their way around the Hayes Code. You know, they left in the reference that Blanche was raped by Stanley, but Stella doesn't go back to him. And that's kind of his punishment. I think the promiscuity part is interesting because we kind of get into that in A Place of the Sun as well. With Alice not being married, she goes to this doctor and she lies about being married, really, because she's embarrassed. But another connection is with Jean Dielman and how they treat her seeing men in that movie. Oh my god, have you finished it? Have you made it through? <laughs> I have, I've never watched yes. it. I've always been too scared. <laughs> I feel like I mentioned this on the last pod, maybe, but I did finish it in a respectable, like, two to three days. (laughs) (laughs) But it's fascinating in how they introduce men and show them and not showing them, really. That is interesting. Well, I'm going to have to watch that now. Now that I know it's like, it can be done. But the craziest thing about poor Elia Kazan here is that they went behind his back and cut almost four minutes of footage from this movie. Based on these three points? Yes. Yeah. They just didn't listen and decided to cut it. And then um, later on in 93, it was restored. So the version that we are watching now is closer to what Kazan would have wanted. The producers did it or the censors did it? The producers. Okay. Which is sad. Um, Yeah, but I think especially in that time, this was like a very strict thing. And for it to be as big of a release and a success as it was, I think is probably due to the fact that it was so agreeable and yes, daring and shocking, but only to an extent. Yeah. I guess though, like if the Broadway crowd can handle it, like just put it in the movie. Well, to that point in my Oscars book, they mention how a lot of people were walking out of this movie quote, complaining that if this kind of filth was so big on Broadway, then it was no wonder Broadway was dying. Ugh, whatever. <laughs> so I feel like we're going to talk more about the performances later when we go through the other, like go through all the acting categories and answer some questions. But I think just to wrap up, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Ugh. I mean, I would give it picture, but I know we don't do that. I would give it mm-hmm. to Brando for actor. This is so hard. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I would give it multiple and I don't say that very often. Yeah, you don't. This is exciting. Um, meanwhile, I'm like, give it five. Um, <laughs> I think I would give it to Vivian Lee here. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can watch A Streetcar Named Desire right now on HBO Max. It's clear that we both recommend this movie. So if you have HBO Max, celebrate its anniversary and let us know what you think of it. Okay, so now getting a little bit more into our director discussion... We'll start with A Place in the Sun and George Stevens, since he won the award for Best Director. 
This was his first of two Best Director wins. He won a few years later for Giant in 1956. He was nominated three other times for The More the Merrier, Shane, and The Diary of Anne Frank. All of the movies I just mentioned, including The Talk of the Town and, obviously, A Place in the Sun. Description here. An ambitious young man wins an heiress's heart but has to cope with his former girlfriend's pregnancy. It stars Montgomery Clift, Elizabeth Taylor, and Shelley Winters. It won six Oscars, including director, screenplay, cinematography, black and white, costume design, black and white, editing, and score, and was nominated for three others, including picture, actor for Clift, and actress for Winters. So what did you think of A Place in the Sun and it winning Best Director? I really love this movie. I hadn't seen it before, and it destroyed me. I know that, you know, right when you see the title, it says... It's based on an American tragedy, this book by Theodore Dreiser. So I was like, okay, American tragedy, like this is going to be like some sort of love triangle, that kind of tragedy. I didn't know it was going to be this sort of tragedy, just like a (laughs) gut punch, realistic version of the worst thing that can happen to you when you're a person who doesn't fit in in society. Mm -hmm. My God. So... I think that really struck me. I do love the direction here. I think some of the choices are just really, really impressive and heartbreaking. I don't think it's exactly a subtle movie. It's very melodramatic, but I think that's okay. And I can confidently say after this movie that Montgomery Clift is my favorite actor from the period. I thought he was incredible in this movie. Like just, we'll talk about the comparison between him and Brando, but... I really couldn't look away from him in addition to him just being a beautiful man. The decisions that he was making, the way he was communicating his emotions just through his eyes, I was just really gutted by it all. And obviously, I agree with people at the time that he and Elizabeth Taylor are literally the most beautiful couple on screen that I've ever seen. So, like I said, it's like looking into a place in the sun or the sun. (laughs) what did you think of it this was also a first time watch for me it took a little to pick up i think but then there's a point when you start to understand what's going to happen and when everything catches up and you start to see the entire picture and that's when it clicked for me but also from then on i was like this is a dismal movie like i feel Mm -hmm. horribly (laughs) i said when i was watching this i was just like this is brutal Mm. i cannot take this this is like a soul crushing movie my god i can only imagine how audiences felt leaving the theater seeing this but i also feel like this is a movie that i need to watch again to fully understand the direction and to see everything because i think it is really smartly made Again, we have amazing performances, especially by Taylor, Clift, and Winters. And it's the acting and the relationships and the writing that all work together again. So it's funny because this is one that I don't think I'm ever going to watch again. I don't know if I can really go through the experience of like George Eastman's rise in quotes and fall like you Mm -hmm. really get here. What was so, I think, topical and what made it feel like an easy watch for me now, it kind of reminded me of Succession a little bit, of this idea of 
I hope this doesn't happen to cousin Greg, but <laughs> what happens when like someone who is kind of adjacent to the family, but mm-hmm. who doesn't have the same amount of wealth, who works for the company in a position that isn't high up at the top and like tries to ascend the ranks, tries to socialize with the really wealthy people, what can happen to them? And Mm -hmm. it's never positive, right? It's never going to work out the way that you kind of hope it does. And I like stories like that. I think that they're really compelling. I think it's part of the reason why your friend Charlie Chaplin called it the greatest American movie that had been made. I think that's an interesting movie for him to choose and say that about. Really? I feel like he's like all about social commentary. And this is like a very razor sharp depiction of that it doesn't really pull any punches yeah yeah i think the commentary of this crux of nepotism was really interesting and how this led to his fall basically and i don't know if that's a direct consequence of what's happening because he's an eastman or if this was in Dreiser's original book, because I also read that the book is like 900 pages long and they took a very small portion of it, but kept the plot the same. Mm. So I'm sure there's so much in there about the backstory and plenty of themes that are maybe just touched on in the movie. I Yeah, and I like how it starts where you just see this beautiful man, Montgomery Clift, and these billboards and things everywhere that say Eastman and... Yeah, he uses that nepotism to set up a meeting with Charles Eastman when he has that note, right? Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, what is going on here? Like, who are you? It feels potentially like a Cinderella story type of movie. And I think that's what I was preparing for. And, you know, that was wrong. What did you think of Shelley Winters in this? I thought she was the perfect melodramatic actress to play this. She looked familiar, and it might have just been my mind playing tricks, but I really liked her. She plays the, like, pregnant girlfriend in distress so well. What did you think of her? I really liked her, too. I mean, this character, its she's so pitiful. You just feel so badly for her because <laughs> just imagine, you know, you're working your job and... All of a sudden, like, this guy who looks like that starts just giving you attention. And she's pretty much, you can just tell, like, a normal young woman. And she's another tragic character in this story. And you just, you really feel for her because, like, none of this is her fault. Like, she just kind of fell for him and his charms. And who wouldn't? And he's a very complicated character because he's actually not a good guy at all. (laughs) But... I think because of Cliff's acting, you are able to see that this isn't this one-dimensional character. And, you know, I found myself still, like, rooting for him in some way, which might be a personal problem for me. But I just think that is, that's because of Cliff's brilliant, subtle acting here. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a personal issue. It's like, at one point, he's torn between two different roads. And as a viewer, you're asking yourself, like, what would you do? I had no idea. Yeah. And that's kind of the point for me where I was like, oh, this like dark road is about to happen. And that was really, I don't want to say his only path, but because I think there were ways around it in the end where it didn't have to end the way that it did. But 
that's what makes it so tragic, obviously, but also so compelling as a story. Well, and when the other woman is Elizabeth Taylor, that is like (laughs) right there, George Stevens, like telling the audience, like, you know, you know who you would choose here, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, as sad as that is, like, they, Liz Taylor and Montgomery Clift, who were best friends in real life, have great on-screen chemistry. They are both so beautiful. I felt so badly because anytime he was with Alice, I would be like, okay, enough. Like, I want to see Angela Vickers. Like, I want Mm -hmm. to see this relationship. And I think George Stevens knows that. He knows that the viewers would respond that way, too. You know, we're also drawn to... The more glamorous relationship, the relationship with the socialite. He knows we'll have that same response that George does. George just unfortunately, bad luck befalls him, incredibly bad decision making, and Mm -hmm. he takes it way too far. And we're not going to spoil, but this ending is a gut punch, and definitely watch it so you know what happens. But you've been warned. (laughs) I think his first problem is that he strings poor Alice along for way too long. From the very beginning, he is awestruck by seeing Angela at the Eastman house. And I think she's with somebody else at that point. But if you feel that way, why are you going for somebody else who, let alone, I mean, looks aren't even a thing. But Alice, who is working on the assembly line, you know, that's the first difference and not something you should be choosing a relationship over but again it was that first look you knew that he was drawn to her from the very beginning and in the end it had me thinking like this is just a movie full of psychopaths (laughs) you have alice who's this crazy wife who's threatening george you have george who is stringing alice along and you know has the horrible decision of choosing between two women and you have angela who knows her power and is speeding recklessly down the highway. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's just everybody involved has their own drama, but it's also presented so well and fits together so well. I felt really badly for Alice because, you know, she didn't have access to abortion services and like she needed mm-hmm. the money and he. I don't know how to say this in a nice way, like <laughs> couldn't keep it in his pants. Like, I don't know. Like he, like, it's very clear that that is his goal is to just like yeah. have sex with her. And then he abandons her like the poor girl. Like, come on. The scene that makes me so sad is when <laughs> you see like all the letters and like the picture of him with Angela Vickers in the paper. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, <sighs> she's obsessed. Yeah. It's yeah. She would have listened to a lot of Taylor Swift songs <laughs> if she was alive right now. It's it's really dark. I also love Angela, though. Um, <laughs> but you're right, yeah. Well, Angela also, it's her and George saying, I love you after knowing each other for a few days. It's like, you guys got to calm down. They're like running out during this party and like saying, oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. It's, it's just, again, though, it's so... It's so over the top and melodramatic. George Stevens and Liz Taylor and Montgomery Clift like want you to believe in this whirlwind romance of these just really beautiful people. And he obviously is totally under her spell. And like, not only is she beautiful and is he very into her, it's the money. It's the status. She represents that other type of life. 
One thing that I read in my Oscar book that I really love, so an inside Oscar, yes, A Place in the Sun did really well with critics, but they attributed its box office success to teenagers, saying that teenagers loved Liz Taylor and... Many girls even got prom dresses that looked similar to that white dress that she yes, wears. Yes, I love that. And talking about the costumes, that final look that she wears, I <gasps> was awestruck. Uh, incredible. So beautiful. That's my favorite scene with her. I think that's her best scene in the movie. You know that's her moment. Like, mm-hmm. this is the final moment and she's going to deliver. But really, the entire movie, I was... In the same way that I was with Brando in Streetcar. It's just their every line is so good. I mean, early on, she's like, tell mama all. And I was like, ooh. (laughs) She just knows how to get it done. She really does. And if you don't know a lot about Liz Taylor or Montgomery Clift, I highly, you know, recommend just doing a quick Google about their friendship. We won't get into it here for the sake of time, but... She really, really helped him out. I, they had a really, I think, special bond and friendship. It started really early in their careers, but lasted up until his death, really. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give it to Montgomery Clift for Best Actor. I, it makes me really sad that he never won, and I do think that he gave the best performance of this year, even against Marlon Brando. Maybe that's a hot take, but I will stand by it. <laughs> What about you? The acting and the direction are great, but I will go with editing here. Mm. It was almost funny to a point how much Will Hornbeck loved a dissolved transition, but I think it did work really well. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Especially the one at the end. Not spoiling, but I love that one. There's one of the fireplace too, where Angela's in the background and the fire is in the foreground and... It dissolves and shows his face on the newspaper burning and her looking at it. I think some of that direction and editing is really fantastic. So our next nominee is John Huston for The African Queen. John Huston has been nominated for 15 Oscars, which is absolutely insane. Huge icon, obviously. He has eight Oscar nominations for writing. He actually wrote most of the scripts for the features that he directed He has five nominations and he has one win, which was for his very first nomination in the category for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. He's the oldest person to ever be nominated for Best Director. He was 79 when he was nominated for Pritzi's Honor. And there's a very cool generational family fact about him, which I loved, which is that he directed both his dad and his daughter to Oscar winning performances. Whoa. His dad, Walter Houston, won Best Supporting Actor for The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. And his daughter is Angelica Houston, who won Best Supporting Actress for Pritzi's Honor. Wow. Okay, so the African Queen, which I will call the original Jungle Cruise. (laughs) (laughs) At the start of the First World War, in the middle of Africa's nowhere, a gin-soaked riverboat captain is persuaded by a strong-willed missionary to go downriver and face off a German warship. This stars Humphrey Bogart and Catherine Hepburn. It won one Oscar, Best Actor for Humphrey Bogart, was nominated for three others, Director, Screenplay for Houston, and Actress for Hepburn. We're going to talk, I think, more in depth about Houston when we do our Maltese Falcon episode, um, which is coming. I think that's one of his greatest achievements. 
I personally do not think that the African Queen is on that list. What did you think about this movie? Definitely an easier watch, like an enjoyable one, but nothing that struck me as one that should have been a Best Picture nominee or a Best Direction nominee, I guess, also. I guess from the start, it was pretty blatantly an anti-German propaganda piece. You know, this is post-World War One being released after World War Two now. And it kind of reminded me of the best years of our lives and how what audiences wanted kind of shaped the landscape of what was being released and made in Hollywood. But apart from that, I liked how the action was dictated from Rose, basically. And then they went on this manhunt to blow up this ship. Again, it was fine. The ending was kind of dull to me, and Humphrey Bogart winning for taking fake leeches off his body. I'm not sure I agree with that. I really can't with this best actor win. <laughs> it's it's pretty annoying to me. This movie is really tough um, for me. I think it works best when it is a like buddy comedy with Katherine Hepburn mm-hmm. and Humphrey Bogart. I'm never going to complain about like watching them mm-hmm. act together. And I think it works like best when it's that type of movie or like a road trip type of movie adventure, but it just, it's not a memorable one to me. Like I'm not going to return to it. I think that Houston definitely has far better movies than this one. I think this is just, Mm -hmm. you know, I think he did a good job with what he had here. This is based on a book as well. And he likes adapting pre-existing material into strong films. So I think that's not really surprising. But this also follows the pretty popular tradition, I would say, of shooting movies in Africa, but focusing on the white people <laughs> involved. Yeah. yeah. So that, I think, is a little more troubling. It's, my God, I had another Taylor Swift reference today, like the Wildest Dreams music video. Um, <laughs> oh, my brain, I'm being like Blanche. <laughs> but yeah, this is Jungle Cruise meets Wildest Dreams, but made in 1951. I went in a little harsh. There were some other things that I liked. You mentioned it being a road movie. The way Houston mixes genres in this felt somewhat fresh to me. Like, it's part road movie, part romance, part war action thriller Mm -hmm. and drama. And Catherine Hepburn is strong. And the way this movie tackles a bunch of themes, like fighting alcoholism, is maybe why it did so well. But if I did take a shot every time... I heard Mr. Allnut, I would for sure be deceased. <laughs> she says Mr. Allnut so many times. Do we have a I, count on it? Like, is that I, available I was information? going to start keeping one. Has to it be was, 50 plus. Oh my God. It was so much. Especially for that type of name too. Like, that's a very noticeable right. name. I do think, like you said... And this is nothing new. This isn't new information. This is obvious. But Houston is a great director and has, I think, a really clear vision and command and can mix Mm -hmm. genres, like you said. And I'm sure at the time people thought this movie was just a really fun romp at the movies (laughs) and with two beloved actors in it and with, I think, really beautiful technical elements, too. Jack Cardiff shot this movie. He also shot our favorite, The Red Shoes. So that's mm. fun. I think the color is really beautiful. Some of the um, the backdrops happening, though, were just very funny. 
but it is 1951 yeah yeah. (laughs) so i understand that (laughs) i was laughing out loud during those rapid scenes and Catherine just being drenched with buckets of water <laughs> yeah I can only imagine them just like filming that on a green screen stage and then just throwing water on her oh <laughs> that would be a scene that's so true yeah it, I mean like I did have fun with it it's just one of those where I was like oh okay this got into best director but not best picture it's kind of an odd uh disparity there Mm-hmm. But John Huston, like, I would rather him be recognized, I guess, than the movie itself. And it's kind of shocking that it did get in. One, because it opened on the last day of eligibility, but it opened to unanimously praised reviews from critics. And two, because this is the first time Humphrey Bogart hired a press agent, and it kind of became this for his time award. And I think that's why we got bogart winning and not brando 100 percent. that's why and this usually happens in the best actor category the it's time to give him an oscar mm-hmm. award you know like brando he's brand new to movies he's not gonna hire a press agent he also is notorious for hating these types of things and he was absent from the oscars as well so you know he would have had to win on merit alone and we know how mm-hmm. often that happens we're not saying that Humphrey Bogart is a bad actor. Obviously not. Right. This is just not the right thing for him to win. I personally, right. like in a lonely place, great. Would have loved to see him win there. You know, Casablanca. He has so many strong performances and was an icon of the time. We use this all the time. But like if you went up to a random person on the street and you're like, what did Humphrey Bogart win best actor for? They'd probably say Casablanca. They're not going to say the African Queen. (laughs) So finally, if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? Visual effects. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, same. You know what? I would give it to Katherine Hepburn because she is always a strong actress, obviously is the most awarded actress in history. You don't want to mess with her, especially in this movie. And I think she was my favorite part. What Oscar would you give this movie? That is hard. I do think she was the best part of this movie, too. I guess I would give it to cinematography for Jack Cardiff. I do think it's really beautifully shot. The colors are very vibrant, and it could have been, like, the order in which I watched these movies, but after watching two black and white ones, the visual style of this movie really popped for me. And that bug visual effect, is that why you're awarding Mm -hmm. it, too? Definitely. (laughs) Okay, are you ready to talk about Liza Minnelli's dad? Is that who this is? Yes. Oh, God. Mm, Did not know. Oh, my God, really? (laughs) This is so great. (laughs) This is how he'll be known on our podcast. Liza Minnelli's dad. Well, yes. Let's get into (laughs) Best Picture winner, An American in Paris. The movie description here, Jerry Mulligan is an exuberant American expatriate in Paris trying to make a reputation as a painter. His friend Adam is a struggling concert pianist who's a longtime associate of a famous French singer, Henri Borel. A lonely society woman, Milo Roberts, takes Jerry under her wing and supports him, but is interested in more than his art. This movie stars Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron. It won six Oscars, including Picture, Story and Screenplay, Art Direction Color, Cinematography Color, 
costume design color, and scoring of a musical picture. And then it also won an honorary award for Gene Kelly. It was nominated for two others for director for Minnelli and editing. We'll get into this winning best picture later, but how did you feel about An American in Paris? You're going to hate me, but I actually kind of liked it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Okay, if we take out the fact that it won Best Picture, there was a lot, I thought, to admire in it, and it was really fun. I really liked the music. I loved the costumes. I thought Gene Kelly was incredible. Like, he's just a very charismatic performer and someone that I really enjoyed watching. I love the ending. I know, don't hate me either, again. And I can't believe that La La Land exists without a title card beforehand that says this is a remake of an American in Paris. <laughs> and I love La La Land, but I don't understand. I have a lot of questions. I think this is definitely in that category of it won best picture and something else should have won. So I'm already starting off by hating it. There were parts that I liked, but to me, the sequence at the end that like last 15 minutes was like the red shoes and the sequence on stage that they did. I, don't think so, only because I don't think the timing of it works out for it to be a ripoff. Because the Red Shoes was 48. Mm-hmm. And this production, they used so many sets, it was half a million dollars just to shoot that sequence here. So I don't mm-hmm. think it was a ripoff. If we want to talk about ripoffs again, we can talk about La La Land. Well, right. Yeah. So obviously, this is like the biggest influence on La La Land. And I still love La La Land because I think it took all of that and used it in an original way. To me, still, you can't convince me otherwise, but the Red Shoes sequence, I think visually it's like doing all the same things. No, I don't (laughs) think so. This is completely different. I love the Red Shoes. The Red Shoes is a five-star film, but like this works completely differently. Also, I think it's just so similar to My Fair Lady, and I know that came later, but I had like similar feelings about <laughs> these two movies. I am not as entranced by Gene Kelly as you are. I think his dancing is phenomenal and great, but I think a lot of what other successful musical movies do is that they use the performing on screen to contribute to its plot, and I don't think a lot of what was done here contributed to anything apart from him dreaming and them performing to provide a spectacle. So what is the ending of La La Land to you? How is it different? I don't understand. It is similar. Yeah, it is. It's the same. So Damien Chazelle specifically says the finale is completely experimental avant-garde filmmaking. Nothing but Gershwin, Gene Kelly, and painted sets. You look at that and you realize how daring the film was. That's true. I think, like, if you look at the finale, like, when I was watching it, I was just like, this is so neat that they did this. They, like, used all of these sets, like, directed all of these dancers. They take you completely through Gene Kelly's imagination and the way that he's thinking about this relationship, going through all of these different scenes with the beautiful costumes. The art direction is just spectacular there and I again this is completely separate from its place at the Oscars but again like you're referencing the other musicals this is why those other musicals happened and why maybe they were better but this is why this like paved the way for them and I think yes it's cheery and saccharine at times and whatnot but 
it's like a pretty cool feat of filmmaking, especially for musicals. I think my problem is that that saccharine, highly romanticized filmmaking and storytelling just isn't for me. And I think that's part of it too. So the like Gene Kelly of it, that is his world. But you like like Wes Anderson. I'm trying to think of other examples because I just feel like this is very much like in a similar way that My Fair Lady was in 64. Like this is very much of its time in a different way. Like I think Streetcar and A Place in the Sun were ahead of their time. This is the father of La La Land. And I get that you like the child better than the parent, but like you have to at least respect the parent a little bit. Yeah. Parts that I did like, I loved that orchestra scene. I think the art direction is phenomenal in this movie the colors pop everywhere Mm -hmm. i think some of the writing and some of the crafting of the plot and how they interweave all of these characters is pretty smart the girls jumping from the rafters from that new year's eve party oh my god crazy Mm -hmm. this isn't to me like my favorite musical or anything by any means but i think it does do some pretty cool things especially for the time and I'm just a big, big fan of the ending. When she gets out of the car, I think that's just the worst ending. You mean the La La Land ending? <laughs> no, the La La Land is different in that way. The dream ends and they look at each other. That's literally the same thing. They, I mean, the change is that it's romantic in this movie and La La Land's more like real life. Right. And that they wouldn't end up together because their careers don't match up, but... But you are about to get in a car with a man and then another man says your name and you're like, never mind, bye. That's a movie. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that's the romantic part of that I just can't. I don't know. I mean, I get it, but it's like, that's not for me. We have a question from Baby Annette. I love the name. Why do you think Vincent Minnelli lost out Best Director, especially with that amazing final dance number? Would this have prevented the disastrous makeup for Gigi? (laughs) So I think Minnelli losing had to do a lot with the precursors. So for the year, in order, National Board of Review came out and A Place in the Sun won picture. Director went to Kurosawa for Rashomon, but that wasn't eligible until the following year. So Mm. he wasn't in this lineup. Next, New York Film Critics Circle went to Streetcar for picture director and actress. And then DGA went to Stevens for Place in the Sun. The Writers Guild went to Place in the Sun again and American in Paris in the comedy and musical category. And then Golden Globes repeated that with Place in the Sun and American in Paris winning picture. But then director went to Benedict for Death of a Salesman. So director was split entirely across And I think it comes down to A Place in the Sun with Stevens winning a For His Time Award. He'd been working for 20 years without a win. And then even though he later went on to win for Giant, I think they were like, we don't know what he has next. Let's award him. So I kind of ascribe to what Gene Kelly said. So in Inside Oscar, there's this quote from Gene Kelly where he says, There's a strange sort of reasoning in Hollywood that musicals are less worthy of Academy consideration than dramas. It's a form of snobbism, the same sort that perpetuates the idea that drama is more deserving of awards than comedy. And I think, you know, while the Academy wasn't ready to embrace this change in filmmaking and picture, we started getting it a little bit in director and this interest in this grittier type of filmmaking and storytelling. So I think... 
that's probably why George Stevens won two. In addition, I just like A Place in the Sun better. And I also, even though I love the final sequence too, I would have voted for him there probably. However, I do think the point about Gigi is so true and it's such a problem. Oh my God. Like the fact that he won picture and director for Gigi is just, it's abominable. I mean, any... Gigi is like one of the worst best picture wins of all time. And I think what's really sad too is that because an American in Paris won, the Academy was less likely to embrace Singing in the Rain, which came a year later, which is, I mean, a Singing in the Rain is a five-star film that should have won best picture. And I feel like they were like, okay, you know, we'll embrace musicals at some point again. They obviously do, but yeah, they need a little break. And I wish that (laughs) Singing in the Rain would have won instead. And if you had to give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? It would definitely be for art direction, color. What would it be for you? That would be the same thing. Um, I will point out, we didn't talk about this, but Gene Kelly getting an honorary award here and not getting nominated for Best Actor is really interesting to me, Mm -hmm. considering this is a Best Picture win. But I would definitely give it to art direction, color as well. I mean, I don't know if this is a reason, but I feel like with Gene Kelly getting this honorary award and then Arthur Freed, a producer of the movie, getting the Irving G. Thalberg Award, I feel like that's really telling for it to have won Best Picture, that people were really behind it, or at least the Academy was behind it, too. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I think that makes sense. It is really funny, though, if you watch like the video. Did you watch the YouTube video of it winning Best Picture? No. You can I watched hear... the Best Actress one. <laughs> My God, with Ronald Coleman and Greer. Yeah. <laughs> the Random Harvest reunion. You can hear the audience gasp. Like People are <sighs> shocked oh, no. that it won. Because it really was like at this point, it was a two horse race between A Place in the Sun and A Streetcar Named Desire. Like, people really did not think this was yeah. going to happen at all. Okay, our final, final movie is Detective Story, which was directed by one of our favorites here at Oscar Wilde, William Wyler. Uh, We have a whole episode on William Wyler and his Oscar wins. If you want to learn more about him, definitely check out that episode. We talk about Mrs. Miniver, The Best Years of Our Lives, Ben-Hur, do biographical info, all of that. Detective Story tells the story of one day in the lives of various people who populate a police detective squad, an embittered cop, Detective Jim McLeod leads a precinct of characters in their grim daily battle with the city's lowlife. The characters who pass through the precinct over the course of the day include a young petty embezzler, a pair of burglars, and a naive shoplifter. This was nominated for four Oscars. It won zero. Its nominations were director for Wyler, screenplay, actress for Eleanor Parker, and supporting actress for Lee Grant. What did you think of Detective Story? And I think more specifically, like, how does this fit into, like, Weiler's work for you or compare to other Weiler? I think Weiler is the reason this movie did as well as it did with nominations. And I think just generally, because he did frame the story in a really unique way. Halfway through, I was like, okay, I still don't know where this is going, but Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. We have a lot of Weilerisms here. We have grand sets. We have a lot of background actors. We have a lot going on in these compound shots, which was really eye-catching to the viewer. Mm -hmm. I think the story of this portrayal of this scoundrel of a cop that we have had some interesting implications, and I guess his opinions on the police force as a whole. The other part that just like kind of felt weird 
and that didn't really fit in as an Oscar film was that it felt like a sitcom to me, like as if this were Brooklyn Nine Nine. Mm-hmm. Like it could have been going on for twenty four episodes with like this very small plot line running through it, and by the end, it's like the end of a season. You know the girl in it is saying goodbye to everybody because she Mm -hmm. was in there the whole time and like that's the end (laughs) yeah well it's so funny that you say that because so I this movie's available on canopy and that's where I watched it and I read the little description that's with it and it's based on a play but the way that Weiler constructed this movie actually made it the prototype for all of the police procedurals we know today so like Hill Street Blues, NYPD Blue, Law and wow. Order, like everything like that, like bit it can go back to this movie actually as like <laughs> being what started it, which I think is really cool. Um yeah. that Weiler did that. I think the movie as a whole like doesn't it doesn't work that well for me. I think it's like lesser Weiler and that could also be because I'm comparing it to the other Weiler movies that I really love. Mm-hmm. Um but I did like Lee Grant a lot in this, but overall to me, it is Lesser Weiler, but I think that he he got in because, like you said, we have some key distinctive Weiler elements here, great sets. It I think it has like a pretty brisk pace to it and just the way that it's structured works. And obviously, he's so well respected in the field. The Academy loves him. By now, he's already done really well at the Oscars, so I'm not surprised that it's here. And we get another wonderful performance by Kathy O'Donnell. Oh, God, we do. <laughs> She's back. in a very young Kirk Douglas, which was interesting. I think with McLeod, it was so hard to find any good in him. Like how scummy and somewhat misogynistic he was. So I think that added to me just not being interested enough in this movie. Because I was like rooting for the criminals most of the time. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's what he was trying to do anyway, but I don't know. It didn't really feel confused in what it was saying, but maybe I just didn't get all of it. Well, the Academy didn't like his performance either, because even though Kirk Douglas campaigned and took out ads in the trades, he was still not nominated. So Hmm. there you go. (laughs) So if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would you give it? I would give it Best Supporting Actress for Lee Grant. She was my favorite part of the movie, so... That's it. Also, the one Robert was so loud every time he spoke. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, why are you five decibels louder than anybody else right now? And he was always screaming. I was like, shut up already. It didn't get a sound recording nomination. (laughs) I might just go with Art Direction again. I think in a way like Streetcar, the set works really well for them. But this is like a very uninspired pick. So now we'll get into the acting categories and discuss a little bit of what happened here. Streetcar was the first film to get three acting wins. So I think that was big. We'll get into if it should have won all four. I think you kind of know our answer from this discussion so far. But we also have a couple listener questions that we'll add in along the way. So just to go over them again, Best Actor went to Humphrey Bogart for The African Queen. Best Actress went to Vivian Lee for Streetcar. Best Supporting Actor went to Carl Malden for Streetcar, and Supporting Actress went to Kim Hunter also for Streetcar. First question comes from Owen Daly. Why is Streetcar perfectly cast regarding the acting styles of the actors and how it plays into the film's narrative? 
I love this question because I think that is what works so well about this movie and why it's one of my favorite movies, to be honest. So Marlon Brando, Carl Malden, and Kim Hunter all had a very similar style of acting. They were all more of the new school method acting types. And Vivian Lee, classically trained stage actress who was in a lot of Shakespeare productions. She couldn't accept her Oscar because she was doing a Shakespeare production on Broadway in New York. Like, that's very much her style. And she's coming into their world. Like, she is the outsider coming into this new place. And it makes sense for all three of them to operate, I think, in a similar style and for her to be different. In addition, I think that Brando's performance is one that is anchored in reality. It's true. It's out there and it's emotional in a way, but it's, again, it's what's actually happening. And her performance, and Blanche, she's not anchored in reality, to put it lightly. So it it makes sense for her to almost feel performative, for it to feel classical, for it to feel like a performance and not this, like, I am living in the moment thing. And I think that's why... Vivian Lee is the perfect actress for that part. And just like she did with Scarlett O'Hara, she is Blanche. Like, she is this character. And kind of a tragic element of this that always just, it makes me really sad when I watch it, is just knowing that Vivian Lee in her personal life was really, really struggling with her mental health. And she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, but of course, you know, in the 40s, 50s, 60s, etc. There was a huge stigma around mental illness and the treatment for bipolar disorder was nowhere near as advanced as it is now. So you know that she was struggling through this and mm-hmm. she was struggling during award season and during the, the reception of all of this. So I think that definitely adds a layer to her performance, but also to the viewer experience while you're watching. And to that point, when she struggled with bipolar disorder, this was the role that she was struggling with. She had trouble distinguishing her life from that life of Blanche. It is it is really heartbreaking when you think of Vivian Lee, her career, how short her career was. I mean, even though like I've talked about like two of her performances are like my favorites ever. It's just like when you think about how much more mm-hmm. she could have done if she was treated with more care. It just makes me very sad. I would basically echo everything that you've said about the actors and how their acting styles helped cement this film as a turning point for the industry and who they were to influence in the future. The next question that we have is from Joe Lorenzini. How close was Streetcar to sweeping all four acting categories? And will any film eventually do it? I wonder if it was actually close or not. I think I mentioned Bogart campaigning earlier and I think that's why he won I would have loved to have seen all four acting wins here because they was so deserved I think it will eventually Mm -hmm. happen but I think it's also harder now to do it in a way we really don't have all four acting categories that often was like silver linings like the last time silver linings I think would be like closest recently but that only had like one win right so it's I would say the other really close one was network Because that had three wins. But yeah, it's, I think it's really hard. I also agree, like, even though I picked Montgomery Clift and he's my favorite here, I mean, I would be happy if Marlon Brando won. I think he's 
a fantastic part of this movie and a huge reason why it works. I think it's very deserving of all four. I think what you need is an ensemble piece that is really loved by actors. This is clearly like an acting branch actors movie. And I think that for another one to come along to win, you would have to have one, you have to have really strong, well-written female characters, which as we know, the Oscars do not always go for. But what's interesting here that I really love is that they're unknowns and they won. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to have just a really strong movie Maybe in an off year, too, especially for the supporting categories. But I think it could happen. But I definitely think it's harder now. And this would have been the best chance. I do think it was close, though. That's maybe silly to guess. But I do think it was close. And then another question from Owen again. Why does Montgomery Cliff not get enough credit for being a method actor before Brando? Another great question, Owen. This I like speaks directly to my soul. I will recommend a great article. It's called Hollywood Has Ruined Method Acting. It's by Angelica Bastian. It's in the Atlantic. And she talks all about like the evolution of method acting, specifically referencing Jared Leto in Suicide Squad, but then getting into specifically Lord. that, what you're asking about Marlon Brando and Paul Newman, Montgomery Clift, and what she gets into here. And I think this is really the perfect explanation for this, which is that she talks about gender and masculinity, specifically when you're talking about method acting. So here, Brando, in his performance, it's what you think of when you think of like hyper masculinity. She, in this piece, says, Quote, Brando wasn't the first American film actor to bring method acting to the screen or even the best, but a big part of why he's so revered is because he helped introduce a different type of masculinity to U.S. cinema. He seemed to live in the realistic, down-and-dirty world of his characters. He was brash, bold, and brimming with machismo. End quote. Hmm. I think that perfectly sums it up, and I think if you're comparing it to Montgomery Clift's presence as an actor and even his performance in A Place in the Sun... He's a much more sensitive actor. He's much more subtle than Brando is. And I think that's why I prefer his performance. And, you know, Clift was very private in his life off screen. Um, but I think his performances always get into this really, really deep emotional place without him yelling and screaming about it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's a big reason why. And then final question. Do you think the Academy got it right with picture and director? I do not think that the Academy got it right. I would be fine with a split here, but I would have done the split between A Place in the Sun and A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm -hmm. I would have voted for A Streetcar Named Desire for picture, even though I do love A Place in the Sun dearly. I think that both of these films are very progressive for American cinema at the time, and I would probably do Streetcar Picture, George Stevens, director. What about you? I think that's how I would have done it too. I would have even given Streetcar Picture and Director. Still today, Picture is a crowd-pleasing film, and that's entirely what An American in Paris was. But I think Streetcar is the most memorable of this bunch and the one that has been talked about for the longest time. And as I get further from watching it, I am liking it more and more. So I think Always that's... exciting. <laughs> I love that. So I would even say I'd give it both. 
As you were saying that, though, I was thinking, like, would I give Minnelli director just so Gigi didn't happen? Hmm. No, I'll stick with my original answer. Okay, so we did it. We celebrated the anniversary of Streetcar Named Desire and talked about so many things today, really. But I had a lot of fun talking about some really fantastic movies and performances and also an Oscar race that really changed movie history. I agree. I definitely didn't realize 1951 would be such an influential year at the Oscars, but I think it's one of the better groups of movies that we've had in a long time. And I know we didn't do all of the best picture nominees, so maybe that's (laughs) where it's different. We kind of picked and choose along the way what we wanted to watch. But in terms of all the big categories, I think the big players here were all very good. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we decided that because we both live in New York and it's fall, finally, even though it feels like summer, we decided to do two New York movies that won Best Picture and Best Director in the 70s. So we will be talking about Annie Hall and Kramer versus Kramer. There are so many New York movies that I do want to talk about, and there are a lot of different angles, but I love these One, because it just continues our best director talk. And two, we get to finally talk about Meryl Streep. I'm surprised it's taken us this long. I know. We are talking about two of my favorite actresses ever, Diane Keaton and Meryl Streep. So this is going to be a very fun time and really going to be more of an actress episode, I think, than a director episode. (laughs) (laughs) I was in Ikea the other day, and the only thing I can think about is seeing Diane Keaton in the LA Ikea. (laughs) I haven't heard this story, so please reshare when we record that episode because I am a bit flabbergasted right now and very jealous. <laughs> okay, I'll hold off from saying it then. Okay. <laughs> I was like, wait. Wow. Well, thank you everybody for listening. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wild Pod. We will see you next week. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye.